Good morning. Good morning. My name is Phil Adams. I'm a church planting pastor over nearby on Devon Avenue where we're seeking to plant a church and have a plant, church planting endeavor. Um, it's my joy to bring God's word with you to you this morning. If you've got a Bible there, please turn to Judges chapter 16. And if you've got one of the house Bibles that you can get at the door, it's page 215. So page 215, where you'll find Judges chapter 16. And we're going to read verses 1 to 4 this morning. And then keep going. But first we're going to read 1 to 4. Page 215, Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Reads like this. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took all of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, and he carried them to the top of the hill that's in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorak, whose name was Delilah. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that we can gather as your people, that we can gather as the church, the body of Christ, and we can center ourselves, God, around your word, through which, God, you have revealed yourself to us, God, and you have revealed your wisdom, God, and your truth, God, about how we should live our lives and how we should respond to one another and how we should respond to you. So, God, this morning, would you speak into our lives? Give us truth this morning that we can ground ourselves on. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, if you were here, we were in Judges going through a series called When God is Not King, and we were looking at the first part of Samson's life, and then this morning, we're going to look at the second part of Samson's life. And last week, we learned how God graciously used Samson to set in motion a chain reaction of events, starting with a wedding gone very, very wrong, if you'll remember, that went on to begin to shock the people of God back into being the people of God. When the Israelites were settled and settling and intermarrying and intermingling, with the Philistines, if you'll remember. God was the one who knew what they needed, and they needed to fight. They didn't need to relax and preserve their distinctness because God, who is sovereign over all, wasn't only preserving Israel, he was preserving his plan of redemption that would find its climax in what Lee said earlier, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that was last week, and we learned that God knows what we need before we do. But this morning, we are in a new passage in Judges chapter 16 that is distinct, and it's, it's, it's separate to the three chapters that we looked at last week. And this, this new passage is still about Samson, and yet the focus shifts. The focus shifts because before, it was looking at a hero who was fighting his enemies with God's help to now in chapter 16 to the conflict and tension between the hero and his God. Because even though God was graciously working through Samson for the sake of Israel, there is nothing that indicates, if you'll remember Samson's behavior, there was nothing that indicated that his behavior was being motivated by anything other than his self-focused desires. 
Samson was dedicated as a child to live out the purposes of God as a Nazarite, yet everything indicated that he was only ever living out the purposes of self. Remember, he saw a Philistine woman and he adamantly wanted to marry her. He, he eats honey from the carcass of a lion when as a Nazarite he wasn't allowed to touch anything dead. He, he caused conflict at his wedding by placing bets on a riddle and then when he lost the bet, he impulsively kills 30 people. Then when his father-in-law doesn't want him with his daughter anymore, funny enough, he, he sets the Philistines' crops on fire, not thinking of the consequences, which ends up with his wife and father-in-law being killed. And instead of stopping and realizing that his behavior is being driven by nothing but revenge, he goes on until we left him last week, in, if you remember, in a bloodbath after killing a thousand men with the bone of a donkey. All through the chapters we read last week, when we were anticipating a hero who would live a life aligned with the purposes of God, it was practically impossible to find any thread of consistent behavior in Samson's life other than the purpose of being self-serving. He's irrational, and he's impulsive, and he's selfish, and he's disrespectful, and he's driven by simply responding in the moment to what's being done to him. And as he behaves this way, he's invincible. He's, he's unstoppable, and he's uncatchable, and it's kind of frustrating. Verse after verse last week, he was invincible and uncatchable and unstoppable. Have you ever wondered... Have you ever wondered at times why God seems to be allowing us to continue in our sin? Like, like you're almost surprised you haven't already been caught and had to pay the consequences. Because you know what the cons- consequences would look like if the, if the receipts were found, if, if the fraud was discovered, if the text messages were read or the internet history was recovered, if your heart was revealed, you know what the consequences would look like, but the lack of consequences in your life perpetuates the thought that that maybe God doesn't care that much. Maybe we are turning a blind eye to God in those moments, and he's turning a blind eye to us. Maybe that's why we haven't been caught and had to pay the consequences Maybe God just doesn't care that much about our sin, but because he's, he's happy enough with everything else that we're doing. If I could just shift the focus away from my sins towards what it seems God is accomplishing through me, well, maybe God's happy enough with that. God, look at everything that I'm doing. I, I, I thank you for blessing it. And I'll take that as your acknowledgement that my sin issue just isn't that much of a big issue. My work life is on the, on the up and up. Thank you, God. I'm getting married soon. Thank you, God. My family is happy and thriving. Thank you, God. We just had our third child. Thank you, God. You blessed us with this house. Thank you, God. My ministry is growing. My church is growing. God, thank you that you are blessing what I am doing, and I'll take that as your acknowledgement that my sin issue is not so much of an issue. Maybe God just doesn't care that much about our sin because he's happy enough with everything else that we are doing. After all, the lack of consequences must mean something. 
Rogers Park, we know better than that. God sees, God knows, and God cares. I don't pretend to know what God is doing in every situation and all circumstances, but the story of Samson, who seems invincible and untouchable, makes it plausible that God is patiently and graciously not allowing our lives to fall apart through the consequences of our sin because he's using us to accomplish a purpose that's bigger than us. Fathers, Maybe God is bearing with your sin, not because he doesn't notice or care, because he's, but because he's being merciful on your children. Maybe he graciously knows that your kids need a mother who can look their father in the eye. Maybe in his mercy, God knows that our kids or our marriages couldn't handle the scars of our sin. Maybe God is bearing with your sin, not because he doesn't notice or care, but because he's being merciful on your parents. Maybe he graciously knows that they wouldn't recover from the heartbreak. Rogers Park, God sees, God knows, God cares. And maybe God is graciously and patiently not allowing your life to fall apart because he's using you to accomplish something that's bigger than you. Maybe as God was preserving Samson for the sake of preserving Israel, God is patiently and graciously preserving you for the sake of preserving your family and your marriage and your integrity and your witness and your kids and your ministry. Maybe God is preserving a purpose that's bigger than us. As we move into chapter 16... The first three verses set the scene by answering a question for us. They answer this question, has Samson changed? Has Samson been able to get his life back on track? Is he continuing on on his path to destruction or is he taking a new direction? Has a new day dawned on the life of Samson? It's a good question. So chapter 16 verse 1 is, is what we get. This is what it says. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. This is like deja vu. Have we, have we not been here before? Because last week in chapter 14, verse 2, we read that Samson saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah and said, now get her for me as my wife. And now we read Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. So, so no, Samson has not changed. If anything, he's spiraling down worse. Before he saw a woman and wanted to marry her, and now he just sees a woman and wants to sleep with her. And while he's spending the night with this woman, the Philistines, who who still are trying to capture Samson because of what he did before, they hear that he's in the city, and they say in verse 2, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But but verse 3 reads like this. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the gates of the city and the posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is at the front of Hebron. Samson sneaks out before he can be thought, and just for kicks, he pulls the city gate off its hinges, and he carries it to a nearby hill, and he's like, hey guys, you missing anything? Samson's still strong. Samson is still playing tricks. And he's still chasing women. 
Samson's still Samson. And then in verse 4, Samson falls for another woman. Verse 4 says her name was Delilah. So that hearing that Samson had this, this, this relationship with his latest lady, Delilah, the, the Philistines try a new tactic to catch him. Then they go to Delilah and they say in verse 5, seduce him and say to him and ask him where his strength lies and by what means he has the power that he has that we may humble him. And we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And I like the way that there isn't even a verse in between her response. She's like, uh, okay. The next verse reads like this. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Read with me in verse 7. Read with me verses 7 to 9. Chapter 16. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So attempt number one, Samson tells her that if she gets seven fresh bowstrings, which are actually fresh tendons from an animal, and if, if she ties him up with these tendons, then he would lose his power and he would be as weak as any other man. But then she ties him up and she calls for the Philistines and he snaps the tendons and he's free. Read with me verses 10 to 12. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me, and you have told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. Sneaky. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. This time Samson tells her, go and get some new ropes, new ropes that haven't been used before. And if you tie me up with those ropes, I'll be as weak as any other man. But then when she ties him up and she calls for the Philistines as they're waiting in a chamber, he snaps the ropes and he is free. Then we read verses 13 to 14. Look with me, verses 13 to 14. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and you've told me lies Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. This time Delilah's getting angry. She's like, twice you've been telling me lies until now you've mocked me, you've told me lies. Give me the real answer. So Samson tells her if she weaves his hair together to the loom and then she puts a pin in his hair to keep it there, then he'll be as weak as any other man. But when she weaves his hair together and puts a pin in it and then she calls for the Philistines He sits up and he pulls the pin and he's still so strong that the loom comes with him. And now we see in verse 15, the emotional big guns come out. Delilah says to him in verse 15, how can you say I love you? 
when your heart is not with me? How can you tell me that you love me and treat me like this? How can you keep secrets from me? You've mocked me three times and still have not told me where your strength lies. Then verse 16 says this. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death. Yikes. Uh Uh-oh. Read with me verses 17 to 21. Verses 17 to 21. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent immediately and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. I know. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made, her, she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him, and the Philistines seized him. And they gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. After Delilah prods Samson to death, day after day, wanting to know his secret, he finally gives in and he says to her, he sa- it says he told her his heart. He says, he says, a razor has never been upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other Man, and then the story goes real fast. Delilah calls for the Philistines. She's like, yes. Samson falls asleep. Delilah has someone come and have Samson's head shaved. Then she wakes up and she says, Samson, the Philistines are here. Wake up. And Samson wakes up and says, I will go out as all the other times and I will shake myself free. And the last sentence in verse 20 says, Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. Verse 21 says, And the Philistines seized him, they gouged out his eyes, they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in prison. How How did this happen? Because Samson's life has literally been turned on its head. He's gone from being motivated by what he sees to having his eyes gouged out. He's gone from running between the Israelites and the Philistines to being chained with shackles. He's gone from setting crops on fire to grinding flour flour in prison. Samson was invincible. He was uncatchable and he was unstoppable. So the question is, the obvious question is, why did he tell her? Why Why would he tell her? He knew what she was up to. Three times she had tricked him and Samson seemed to just be playing along. But then why did he tell her and then fall asleep? I think there are two reasons. One that's a little more surface level and one that runs a little bit deeper. Why did he tell her? The first reason is quite simple. And it's frank. But it's simple. Sin makes us stupid. 
Sin makes us make stupid decisions. What we have to see about Samson is that although he was physically strong, he was spiritually weak. He was driven by impulse and satisfaction in the moment, regardless of the consequences. We've seen that. He'd never learned self-control. He'd never developed the necessary character to make wise decisions. And this inability to control his urges finally got the better of him. And the urge to satisfy, satisfy Delilah clouded his better judgment, and he did something stupid. Rogers Park, maybe you thought, maybe the thought has crossed your mind that you're uncatchable or you're invincible. Like, like you're almost surprised you haven't already been caught and had to pay the consequences. But more than likely, more than likely, your lack of self-control to stop doing what you're doing will be what snowballs your sin so that it becomes your urges that are controlling you, not your brain, until, frankly, you do something stupid. And all that God has been patiently and graciously preserving in our lives will feel the full brunt of our sin. Your family, your marriage, your integrity, your witness, your kids, your ministry. Our lack of self-control to stop doing what we're doing will be what snowballs our sin so that it becomes our urges that are controlling us, not our brains. I think the second reason that Samson told Delilah runs a little bit deeper. It's, it's, it's fascinating that Samson knows exactly where his strength comes from. He says, he says, a razor has never come upon my head. I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Remember, remember a Nazarite was someone set apart for the purposes of God who signifies that he's, he's, he's set apart by not drinking wine, not touching dead things, and not cutting their hair. But, but there was nothing all of last week and there was nothing all of this week that indicates to us that Samson was ever aware of his special calling. And then he says this. Remember last week we, we were anticipating a hero who would live a life aligned with the purposes of God, but in reading about Samson's life, it was practically impossible to find any thread of consistent purpose in Samson's behavior other than being self-serving. So after we have watched Samson live his whole life with his own agenda, we see that he actually knew that he was meant to live a life with a different agenda. He says, I have been a Nazarite to God. He's saying he was to live in such a way that it was to be a signal and a reminder to himself, a signal and a reminder to society, and a reminder to God that his life was intentionally chosen for a purpose to pursue something for the glory of God. And then we read his story and we have this question, well, why didn't he if he knew? Why did he marry a Philistine? Why did he eat from the carcass of a lion? Why was he motivated by revenge? Why did he give up his hair, the most visible, the most consistent sign that a Nazarite had that he was set apart for the purposes of God? Why did he do that all? Why did he give it up? You know, we shouldn't be surprised that Samson gave up his hair because he'd already given up everything else. I think Samson gave up his hair because he's following in the pattern of his life. 
I think he gave up his hair because the pattern of his life was that he was indifferent to it. He was indifferent to being set apart. He always had been. He was indifferent to God's calling on his life. He knew about it, but he was indifferent to it. He knew that he shouldn't marry a Philistine, but he did it anyway. He knew he was being disrespectful to his parents. He knew he was impulsive. He knew he was uncaring, but he did it anyway. Samson's life of indifference to what God was calling him to. Despite all of his accomplishments, despite all of his accomplishments, he was indifferent to what God was calling him to. One of the feelings that comes up reading Samson's story, and I have worked through this, is should, should Samson be remembered for his accomplishments or for his sin? And maybe we should remember him for his accomplishments. I mean, I know he's not perfect, but he did kill a lot of bad guys. He did. He really did. And is that not the bar that is held in the Old Testament, killing bad guys? We get that he touched dead things and, and he has a weakness for women and in the end he cut his hair. But let's get real. What kind of commandment was that anyway? Don't cut your hair. And re remember when the angel came to his parents, they told him that he would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And that's what he did. Let's keep going. Verse 22 draws us back in with a signal that the story isn't over. Verse 22, if you see it, says, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Read with me verses 23 to 26. 23 to 26. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to, to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice and they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the two pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. So the Philistines, they throw this, this huge party to celebrate that, God, that, that they had finally captured Samson. And they offer this great sacrifice to Dagon, their God. And they rejoice in verse 23, saying, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Our God has defeated his God. And they throw a party. In verse 24, they say it again, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Then when their hearts were merry, they got a little bit tipsy. They called Samson out of prison, blind and in chains, and stood him between two pillars. You know what's coming. Samson says to your young man in verse 26, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Verse 27. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there was about 3,000 men who looked on while Samson entertained. Verse 28. 
Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my eyes. Verse 29. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars in which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. The story ends, and we're not really sure what to think. There's kind of like a bad taste in our mouths. I mean, everybody is dead. <laughs> is that good? Samson got his strength back and he killed more bad guys I guess but then there's this verse that says so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life and we might read this and think in some way he is he, his actions are being vindicated in Samson's final days as, as, as some kind of heroic act of sacrificing himself for God's name and for God's glory or to protect the Philistines the problem, the problem is that when Samson pushes down those pillars to kill the Philistines, his, his motivation was what his motivation has always been. To do to them what they did to me. We see this scene after scene last week, tit for tat, retaliation. Samson could have pushed down those pillars as a response to all of the mockery of God going on around him, but no, because Samson's eyes had been gouged out. He had his own agenda. And he says in verse 28, God, please give me my strength one more time. Why? That I may avenge the Philistines for my eyes. I want to do to them what they did to me. The final verse, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life, is a subtle and tragic hint from the author that Samson didn't really do that much during his life. It's a subtle and tragic hint from the author that Samson didn't really do that much during his life. God accomplished more through him when he was blind, chained, and dead than when he could see, run, and fight. Samson did so much, but compared to what God orchestrated at the end of his life, we aren't so sure anymore. Could he have done more during his life? This verse, verse 30, leaves the question lingering in our minds, did Samson waste his life? It leaves the question in our minds, what could have been with Samson's life and what went wrong? If God could do more with Samson blind, chained, and dead than when he could see, run, and fight, what went wrong during Samson's life? And we, we still can say, no, no, no. He, he, he made mistakes, but look what he did. Look what he accomplished. He did things that nobody else could do. He set those foxes on fire, and he killed a thousand men with a donkey bone. He made mistakes, but look what he did. 
The problem is that God didn't call Samson to do something. He called him to be something. And if you missed that last week or this week, that's okay, because Samson's dad missed it too. Back when the angel came to Samson's parents in chapter 13, verse 7, they, he comes to, the angel comes to tell him that you're going to conceive of a child and says, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son who was Samson. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the, from the day he is in the womb to the day of his death. And it said it already said it in verse 5 of chapter 13, the child shall be a Nazarite. And I love the father's response. It's because it's exactly what I would have asked. And we didn't read this last week, but in verse 12 of chapter 13, Manoah, Samson's dad, he says to the angel, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? <laughs> I love that. What a dad question, holding the baby. And what will be his mission? And the angel responds, all that I have told the child's mother, let her be careful. You just told her to be a Nazarite. You just told her that he should be a Nazarite. What is he to do? Be a Nazarite. No, but what is he to do? Be a Nazarite. I, I know he's to be a Nazarite, but what's he to do? Be a Nazarite. You told us that he was going to save Israel from the Philistines. What is he to do? Be a Nazarite. It's frustrating. When we come to the story of Samson, last week we asked the right question. We said, what is God doing? And we learned that God was working through Samson to preserve Israel and consequently preserving his plan of redemption for the world. But when we come to Samson, we ask the same question. We ask, what is Samson doing? We see him doing a lot of stuff. What is Samson accomplishing, we ask, when it's the wrong question and we should be asking from the very beginning what is Samson being because Samson was never told to do something he was just told to be something and my fear is that when it comes to our lives we make the same mistake we ask ourselves what are we doing when we should be asking ourselves what are we being because asking what are we doing causes us to look at our actions and our accomplishments, but asking us what are we being causes us to look into our hearts regardless of our accomplishments. Let me explain this briefly. Number six, five, where the original Nazarite vow is found, it says this, all the days of his vow of separation... Samson's separation. No razor shall touch his head until a time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord and he shall be holy. All the days of his separation, he is to be holy to the Lord. Samson was to live in such a way that it was a signal to himself and a, and a signal to society and a signal to God that he was holy, which means that he was set apart, that he belonged to God, that he was one of God's own. And last week, we closed by reading Ephesians 
Ephesians 1, 4 says, even before God made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ. And we celebrate that. The beauty of the gospel is that God set in motion a chain of events through history and through the book of Judges to ensure that what we needed was provided. God sent his son to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved so that we could be his children. He left the Holy Spirit to empower us. And the second half of Ephesians 1, 4 tells us why. Ephesians 1, 4, even before God made the world, God loved us and God chose us in Christ to one day be holy. To be holy. To be distinct, not in our accomplishments. To be distinct, not in our successes. But to be distinct in our character. To be a people who reflected to one another and to ourselves and to society and to God himself reflected the character of God. Love and joy and peace and patience and mercy and self-control. It's hard to know what Samson's life could have been if he had lived up to his calling. But in, in a sense, I think not knowing is the point. The angel did not tell Samson's parents what Samson was going to do. They didn't tell him what to do. Because the emphasis of God's calling on our lives is to prioritize our Christ-likeness above everything else, and then everything else will flow out of our Christ-likeness. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I'm closing with this. Next time we try, next time you try, next time I try to play down our sin issue because of all that we're doing and accomplishing, Remember that God cares less about what you're doing and more about who you're being. Christ did not die so that we could do something. He already can do everything. Christ died so that he would be, we would be his people and so that we would be holy. So that we could reflect his character to the world. He can reflect his own power. He can reflect his own accomplishments. He can reflect his own success. He wants us to reflect his character. What it looks like for each of us to preserve, persevere in that will be different. But it will probably look like putting limits on our lives to ensure that we take the right steps to prioritize our hearts over our busyness and over our accomplishments. If you get the promotion, but you can't control your pride, stay where you are. Because God cares more about who you're being than what you're doing. If you're asked to go on the business trip, but you can't control your loss, don't go or take someone with you because God cares more about who you're being than what you're doing. If you're a natural leader, but you can't help dominating, consider stepping down. Because God cares more about who you're being than what you're doing. If your ministry is booming but your marriage is losing, slow down. Because God cares more, more about who you're being than what you're doing. 
And maybe you're thinking, Phil, it sounds like this would make us as a church much more inward focus. It, would, it makes it sound like you're saying we should be a church that focuses inward on, on ourselves rather than pushing out and reaching out and doing more. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm saying the opposite. I say this for the sake of the mission of our church. Here in the north side of Chicago and the world. Because those watching us care infinitely less about how much we are accomplishing and care infinitely more that we are being who we say we are. That's what they need to see. They need to see the character of God. And I think one of the most beautiful things is that holiness, that love, that joy, that peace, patience, self-control is what God is celebrating in people's lives. And therefore, anybody can be a hero in God's eyes. And not because of your accomplishments, but because of who you're being. There's that idea. I don't even know if it's in this country that cleanliness is next to godliness. It's a lie. And this idea that competency is also next to godliness is a lie. The only thing that's next to godliness is holiness. You can be rough, you can be living on the streets and seemingly incompetent, but holy. And you can be everything that God's called you to be and everything God needs you to be. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God. It turns this world upside down. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us, God, the opportunity, God, to be your people. The privilege, God, to be a people that reflects your character to the world, that shows your love, that shows your grace, that shows your mercy, that shows your justice, your self-control. God, we thank you, God, and we are overwhelmed with the weight of that, God, that we, your people, are to be you in our block, in our street, in our apartment block, God. People are to see you through us. So God, would you give us a heart to be holy? A heart to reorient our lives, God, around making that happen. Give us that desire, God, I pray. Maybe be that kind of church. In Jesus' name.